0: Uh, thank you, everyone, for being here. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about the science and some of the ethics of uh, anti-love biotechnology. And uh, the first part of my talk, which is the longer part, is going to be covering a lot of the science in this area. Uh, and then I'm going to finish up by sketching out some initial ideas for an ethical framework for how we might start to deal with some of this technology. Uh, I want to just acknowledge my collaborators for this project. They are Olga Vudarczyk, Andrew Sandberg, and Julian Zavalescu, all very attractive individuals. <laughs> uh, one of them is my girlfriend, but... uh <laughs> to guess who. Alright, I'd like to start with a story. Uh, it's not a very happy one. Uh, the journalist Susan McClelland has written about a tragic account of one Canadian woman's uh, struggle to leave an abusive relationship. Uh, the woman's partner's name was Rob, and according to the story, he wore big pewter biker rings on every finger. And after one trifling incident early in their marriage, started smashing her in the face with his knuckles. He grabbed her hands and bent them backward, breaking one of her fingers. Uh, The woman, whose name is Bonnie, recounted later on, I was in shock. I was stunned, but I didn't leave. A few hours after the incident, Rob broke into tears and told me how sorry he was. I loved him so much that I believed him when he said it wouldn't happen again. Uh, But as happens a lot in these stories, it did happen again uh, month after month. So why didn't Bonnie leave? A part of her wanted to leave, she said, but another part of me hesitated. He'd cry and show such remorse that I'd forget my own pain. He'd become romantic and sweet and I'd fall in love with him all over again. Uh, Bonnie's experience, of course, of feeling intense love for her abuser is not at all unique. The clinical psychologist Joseph Carver has even used the notion of Stockholm Syndrome, uh, by which a victim forms a very strong emotional bond with her uh, attacker as a way to cope with ongoing trauma, uh, as a framework for explaining certain cases of long-standing domestic violence. In these cases, the abused partner is reluctant to end the relationship and may even defend the aggressor when others try to intervene. Uh, Similarly, Stanton Peel and Archie Brodsky have argued that harmful relationships can be literally addictive for some people uh, leading them to chase constantly after momentary highs of emotion only to crash back down into despair. And Peel and Brodsky use the term interpersonal heroin" to illustrate their point. Of course uh, battered men and women do sometimes uh, break free from their violent relationships but their love for their partner may not diminish uh, even months or years after the breakup. And this can lead to uh, long-term suffering interfering with or even precluding future emotional bonds Uh, as a recent posting from an internet support group illustrates, and I'll read a quote from that post. About 10 months ago, I broke up with my abusive partner, but I'm unable to get over him. I've tried to date other men, but I always end up breaking things off with them, just wishing I was back with my high school boyfriend. I know he's a terrible person, but I am unable to have other relationships, and I'm scared that I'll never be able to be in love again. Okay, love hurts, as the saying goes, And a certain amount of pain and struggle in intimate relationships is unavoidable. And as the argument often goes, uh, some amounts of suffering and types of suffering can even be beneficial because uh, it's a sort of thing that can lead to personal growth and self-discovery and uh, a range of other components of a life well-lived. But other times, love is simply dangerous. Either it can trap a person in a cycle of violence, as it did for Bonnie, or it can prevent uh, someone from moving on with her life or forming healthier relationships as it did for the woman in the second example. And there are other cases of potentially problematic love as well. Uh, An older person's uncontrollable sexual attraction for a child. Unrequited love that leads to uh, suicidal thoughts or behaviors. uh, Potentially romantic love for someone other than one's spouse. Maybe incestuous love. Love for a cult leader. Of course, one issue to bring up right away is that other versions of this list, maybe from the 1950s in America, or from certain religious groups today, or from other parts of the world, uh, might include a number of items that have the potential to rub more liberal intuitions uh, very much the wrong way. Uh, Homosexual love, interracial love, intercaste love. Some people think that these are very perilous indeed. So this is something that we'll need to think about when we get to the conversation on ethics a little bit later on. I had a footnote about incestuous love, but we'll come back to that later if you want. Uh, If you focus your attention for a moment just on the first set of cases, it seems pretty clear that the feeling of love or attraction might very much result in harm, either for the person himself or herself, or for other vulnerable people, like a child or a spouse. In other cases, such as with love for a cult leader, the love might seem beneficial to the individual, but has the potential to be quite hazardous considered from other perspectives. Uh, so, um, it seems reasonable to ask, at least in an exploratory way, how these perilous feelings of love might be diminished so that the likelihood of those possible harms attending them, uh, including domestic violence and child abuse and uh, a suicide and adultery and so on, might be most effectively avoided. And in this talk I want to explore whether there could even be some sort of cure for these kinds of dangerous devotions. Now the idea of uh, an anti-love remedy or a cure for love is uh, obviously a very old idea. Uh, References come from Lucretius and Ovid and Shakespeare and many others, and they're tightly linked to the notion that love or infatuation under certain conditions can be just like a serious illness, bad for one's physical and mental health and sometimes uh, very damaging to one's overall well-being. So here's a quote from Shakespeare, which I've destroyed by formatting out the iambic pentameter. But uh, my love is as a fever, my reason, the physician to my love, angry that his prescriptions are not kept, hath left me, past cure am I. And uh, he might have found some some remedies for his situation if he'd looked at Lucretius. Uh, Scare afar whatever feeds thy love, and turn elsewhere thy mind, and vent the sperm within thee gathered into sundry bodies. It's uh, one of of many uh, possible solutions uh, listed in De Rerum Natura, Book 4. Ovid says, Tell yourself often what your wicked girl has done, and before your eyes place every hurt you've had. Impress your mind with whatever's wrong with her body, and keep your eyes fixed all time on those faults so there's some classic remedies for uh, the problem of love Uh, in a similar vein George Bernard Shaw has famously called love one of the most violent, most insane, most delusive and most transient of passions and even mocked the idea that modern marriages should be founded upon so fleeting and irrational and emotional a foundation Uh, ancient cures for love included phlebotomy exercise, bloodletting avoiding rich foods and wine, drinking plenty of water the more recent Harry Potter's stories uh, say you can cure an anti-love potion out of Wigan tree twigs, castor oil, and uh, the extract of a Gertie root, whatever that is. Um, well, these examples are clearly pre-scientific, or in the Harry Potter case, uh, just made up. They both kind of point to a conception of love as something that is rooted in the body, uh, that's physical, and that therefore could be potentially stamped out by the various ministrations of a doctor or a wizard, as the case may be. Uh, modern neuroscience goes a step further and traces love's roots to the brain, and even uh, to specific biochemical pathways uh, modulated by a handful of hormones and neurotransmitters. Uh, in 2008, uh, Julian and Anders uh, created an argument for what they called the neuroenhancement of love and relationships, and the idea was that maybe you could use biochemistry to help maintain an authentic and a well-suited relationship bond that might otherwise needlessly break down due to biological causes. Uh, In the following year, writing in Nature, the uh, neurobiologist Larry Young planted a seed for the modulation of love in the opposite direction, raising the possibility of uh, a possible chemical cure. He started with the idea of love as an emergent property of a cocktail of ancient neuropeptides and neurotransmitters, and he suggested that uh, drugs that manipulate brain systems at whim to enhance or diminish our love for one another may not be far away. Uh, Okay, the first uh, hints of this kind of neuromodulation are already in the air. Um, As reported in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, uh, psychiatric drugs are being given to ultra-orthodox yeshiva students at the request of rabbis and marriage counselors as a way of suppressing sexual feelings so that the patients can find it uh, easier to comply with rigid orthodox norms about love and human sexuality. Uh, A Christian man suffering from what he described as internet sex addiction A condition he felt was ruining his marriage was recently prescribed oral naltrexone to control his urges. It's normally used to treat alcohol addiction. And uh, American sex offenders are sometimes offered chemical castration through the ingestion of anti-androgen drugs as a condition for parole. Now these cases are uh, already loaded with some pretty difficult moral questions, but they essentially involve uh, the the low-level and clumsy uh, use of pharmacology to target the bodily sex drive. Uh, So uh, they can only indirectly influence a person's sort of higher-order feelings of love or attachment. Uh, Yet emerging biotechnologies may make it soon possible to intervene in love-related systems in much more direct and consequential ways, generating even trickier ethical questions as I'll discuss. And what I want to do now is to sample some of the latest neuroscience research that I think might lie along a pathway toward a biochemical cure for love And then, as I indicated before, I want to finish up by suggesting uh, a start of an ethical framework for how to deal with that technology. Now, it's occurred to me that I could just say, uh, suppose there were a pill that had such and such an effect on uh, the body, and I could skip all the science and get right into the ethics. But one reason why I want to actually give uh, some of this information in some detail is so that we can get a sense of just how plausible this technology really is, and and maybe even a sense of the urgency of the the ethical uh, uh, issues for dealing with it if they should arise. Uh, Okay, in order to explore the neurochemistry of any sort of love-diminishing intervention, we have to start by understanding love itself from the perspective of the brain. And from this perspective, love is a complex neurobiological phenomenon that has been wired into our biologies by the forces of evolution. Quoting uh, Tobias Esch, he says, relying on trust, belief, pleasure, and reward activities, uh, largely tied to the limbic system, love's ability to bring together and keep together human beings from prehistoric times until the present day has obviously played a key role in the survival of our species. In terms of natural selection, the human adult pair bond seems to have developed from earlier structures involved in sustaining the attachment between mothers and their infants and this adaptive workaround, to use uh, Eastwick's term, may have been driven by the heightened importance over generations of human evolution of paternal investment in uh, offspring with increasingly large and more complex brains. And these bigger and bigger infant brains uh, took longer to reach maturity than their more ancestral counterparts, which uh, would leave the baby in a vulnerable and underdeveloped state for an extended period of time. And the idea is that if parents fell in love and remained together, at least uh, during this fragile period for their offspring, their own genetic fitness would be enhanced. So it has been argued that underlying human love uh, is a set of basic brain systems for lust, uh, attraction, and attachment that have evolved among mammals. And Helen Fisher is the biggest uh, proponent of this view and she and her colleagues have argued that the lust system promotes mating with a range of promising partners, the attraction system guides us to choose and prefer a particular partner, and the attachment system fosters long-term bonding, encouraging couples to stay together until their parental duties have been discharged. And then the idea is that these universal systems are hypothesized to form a foundation on which the cultural and individual variants of romantic and longer-term love are uh, built. These three emotion-motivation subsystems proposed by uh, Helen Fisher and her colleagues provide a pretty good framework for organizing some of the neurochemical interventions that might one day be used to undermine potentially dangerous forms of love. Uh, And I should just say that there are a number of other what you might call biological theories of love that are pretty much equally plausible and which have a lot of overlap with Helen Fisher's theories, Um, but I think hers is probably the most well-known, and and for that reason, uh, among others, I've decided to go ahead and use her theory. But uh, there's a lot of shared theoretical viewpoints with other researchers working in this area, they might split up the system slightly differently or call them different things. Uh, So Fisher argues that these subsystems are characterized by discrete and yet in many ways interrelated uh, behavioral repertoires, neural circuits, and changes in hormone levels. The LUST system, for example, is distinguished by craving for sexual gratification, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, and is associated with the hormones estrogen and testosterone in both men and women. The attraction system promotes focused attention, intrusive or obsessive thoughts about the object of desire, feelings of exhilaration, and so on, and is associated primarily with adrenaline, uh, dopamine, and serotonin. And the attachment or pair bonding system inspires feelings of calm and security, fosters a range of relationship protective behaviors, and is associated mainly with the neuropeptides oxytocin and vasopressin. Uh, Dopamine uh, seems to play a reinforcing role as well. Now these systems can and do uh, function somewhat independently in humans and in other mammals. In other words, it's possible to be attached to one person, attracted to someone else, and in lust with a third. Uh, or as Helen Fisher writes, men and women can copulate with individuals with whom they are not in love, they can be in love with someone with whom they have had no sexual contact, and they can feel deeply attached to a mate for whom they feel no sexual desire or romantic uh, passion. And while that may all be true, it also has to be pointed out that uh, the underlying hormonal and neural circuitry that run across these systems is highly interactive and subject to quite a bit of overlap. So for example, testosterone can stimulate the production of vasopressin, oxytocin can modify activity in dopamine pathways, and serotonin can alter the synthesis and secretion and the function of several other neurotransmitters. So given this interconnectedness, a chemical intervention designed to target one system uh, may uh, have effects on another or might lead to a, a cascade of hormonal changes that could manifest at the level of psychology and behavior in in uh, rather unpredictable ways and in ways that might vary considerably from individual to individual. Uh, Zach Lynch has predicted that sophisticated biochips and uh, advances in brain imaging will allow for what he... Uh, calls the development of neuroceuticals, which would be these highly efficient synthetic neuromodulators that could go in and target specific sub-receptors in very well-defined neural circuits. Um, but this sort of finely tuned technology uh, is uh, very much on the horizon, and it might be a matter of decades before uh, Lynch's predictions can be fully tested. So let's talk about some interventions after all that lead-in. Uh, interventions acting on the LUST subsystem are already available. Uh, I gave three examples in the introduction. Uh, antidepressant medication, especially SSRIs, androgen blockers, and oral naltrexone. Here I'm adding tobacco and alcohol, uh, uh, as well as a range of other medications with reduction of libido among their potential side effects. So that includes almost all blood pressure pills, pain relievers containing butalbital, as well as opiates like uh, morphine and hydrocodone, statin uh, cholesterol drugs, certain acid blockers used to treat heartburn, the hair loss drug finasteride. Uh, and uh, seizure medications. So with the exception of androgen-reducing drugs uh, used specifically for chemical castration, which I'm going to talk about shortly, the negative effect of these chemical substances on a person's sex drive is uh, typically not uh, intended and, and certainly not desired. But um, as, the, as I illustrated earlier with the off-label use of antidepressants in, uh, for orthodox Shiva students, this does not necessarily have to be the case. Well, there you go. Uh, In terms of mechanism, these sort of uh, libido-reducing effects usually follow from either direct or indirect uh, regulation of testosterone levels. Uh, And a number of studies have measured the effects of testosterone reduction on problematic sexual thoughts or activities like intrusive erotic fantasies or compulsive exhibitionism. Uh, Russell and Witsum, for example, report that the peptide tryptoralin, which through a chain of interactions ultimately downregulates testosterone, uh, can lead to a reduction in pedophilic sexual fantasies and urges among some men. Amelung and colleagues examined the combined effects of androgen deprivation therapy and group psychotherapy on a small sample of what they called self-identifying help-seeking pedophiles and reported a reduction of paraphilic sexual behaviors, uh, uh, an increase of risk awareness and self-efficacy, and a decrease of what they call offense-supportive cognitions. Um, a big problem with these sorts of treatments is that they can, there can be very troubling side effects. Uh, testosterone obviously plays many roles in maintaining normal, healthy functioning throughout the body, and manipulating these levels can have consequences throughout the body and, and on the person's emotions as well. So uh, Kruger and Kaplan administered oral flutamide, which is an anti-androgen drug normally used to treat prostate cancer, and followed that with an instra- intramuscular injection of uh, luprolide acetate, which is another uh, drug that blocks the effects of testosterone, to uh, a number of hospitalized patients who were struggling with some of these paraphilic conditions. This was included uh, pedophilia, voyeurism, public masturbation, compulsive use of prostitutes, tendency to commit rape, and unwanted masochistic desires, uh, all things that seemed pretty, pretty demonstrably uh, problematic. And they did report positive outcomes in a number of cases, But there were serious complications in uh, every one of the cases they described. So one patient experienced nausea and vomiting. Uh, Most of them lost the ability to ejaculate or have an erection altogether. Some patients showed a complete absence of sexual feeling or interest and became extremely depressed. Uh, And every patient subjected to prolonged treatment suffered bone mineral density loss, uh, which puts them at risk for osteoporosis. Another problem with androgen reducing interventions uh, as a class is that their effect is generally global rather than local. So while someone might want to reduce only harmful or ill-directed lust uh, toward a child, for example, or an unattainable object of desire, uh, it doesn't look like current biotechnology is sensitive enough to deliver on these sorts of person-specific goals. Okay, let's move on to the uh, attraction system. Interventions here are a little bit more hypothetical, uh, though there are some blunt chemical instruments that could could be used today. Um, The nature of what makes a partner attractive in the first place is not very well understood and is likely to be highly variable. But insofar as they could be shown to work, uh, anti-attraction drugs might reduce the obsessive thoughts characteristic of early stage romantic relationships or the chance that an an initial spark of attraction would go on and and lead into a, a longer term bond. Whether it would be possible to block attraction to particular individuals or groups is not yet known, but uh, as I'm going to discuss in a little bit with the Westermark effect, it does seem that the brain is capable of selective negative imprinting, uh, sexual imprinting toward otherwise eligible individuals. Research by Marziti and colleagues suggests that the brain mechanisms involved in romantic attraction may overlap considerably with those involved in obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, Obviously, obsessive thinking and preoccupation with the tiniest details are distinctive of both phenomena, and both seem to turn on alterations occurring at the level of the serotonin, or 5-HT transporter protein. In their study, participants who had recently fallen in love, uh, who were still in the first intense stage of a relationship but prior to intercourse, uh, showed similar levels of the uh, 5-HT transporter as a sample of OCD patients, in both groups showing lower levels than healthy controls. And uh, as the authors concluded in what I thought was a sort of humorous observation, it would suggest that being in love literally induces a state which is not normal. Uh, uh, And and in fact, when they retested these lovers uh, about a year later, um, their uh, serotonin levels had returned to baseline, at which point their obsessive ideation regarding the partner had disappeared as well, as uh, some of us may have experienced. (coughs) All right. Uh, Given the findings of Mara, Ziti, and colleagues, it stands to reason that drugs that are used to treat OCD uh, might have some effects on at least the obsessive aspects of a fledgling romantic relationship as well. Um, So patients with OCD respond most reliably to uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, a class of antidepressants whose diminishing effect on the sex drive we already talked about, Uh, but they can also lead to emotional blunting of higher order feelings involved in romantic attraction. Um, potentially this may be due to the interference of SSRIs with the release of dopamine which uh, would uh, decrease the dopamine-fueled feelings of euphoria that are typical of these uh, early-stage romantic attraction and other emotion blunting effects are described by Adam Oprick and his colleagues who noted that eighty percent of their SSRI using patients reported less ability to cry worry become angry or care about others feelings so it's not just the sex drive that's influenced in many of these cases These and other findings led Dixie Meyer to uh, spell out the implications for our thesis. Uh, The overall lack of emotional stimulation may produce a blandness that overwhelms the romantic relationship. And Nikki Graham uh, said, aside from ruining your sex life, antidepressants could also be responsible for breaking your heart. Uh, For someone who is seeking to uh, detach romantically, of course, this sort of outcome might be at least partially the point. Another approach to blocking interpersonal attraction might derive from the Westermark effect. Uh, Westermark observed that people living together in close proximity during the first years of their lives become desensitized to each other as potential sexual partners. So the classic example is uh, siblings who, as we know, do commonly fail to find each other sexually attractive. Um, But it has also been observed together with um, children raised together in Israeli kibbutzim, The same phenomenon is seen with arranged marriages in which child daughters are raised together with their husbands-to-be, as well as in marriages of patrilateral parallel cousins. And uh, this negative sexual marking effect has also been observed in animal-rearing experiments, and the idea is it may constitute an evolved unconscious strategy to reduce inbreeding. I will indulge in a side note, I was trying to find an image to represent the idea that brothers and sisters do not find each other sexually attractive. So I typed in brother and sister into the Google image search and uh, found quite a bit of evidence that would seem to contradict uh, Westermark's predictions. So I had to click out of that screen rather quickly. It was so ironic that I had to share it. Uh, <laughs> the exact mechanism underlying the Westermark effect remains unknown. It might involve uh, learning olfactory cues, but other mechanisms could be involved as well. And some research indicates that there is a sensitive or a critical period for this imprinting to take place, which opens the possibility that the right sort of intervention, either pharmacological or contextual, could reopen this sensitive period and allow for a negative uh, sexual marking of a present partner. This sort of intervention is obviously not currently feasible and and is a a matter of speculation whether it will come about. And finally we're on to anti-attachment interventions. Um, There's very little concrete evidence that existing technologies could completely break down an existing uh, long-term human pair bond. Uh, Although in many cases, this sort of breakdown happens naturally over time, uh, just through the normal uh, uh, flow of biology. There is compelling evidence for this sort of possibility, however, in uh, other mammals with analogous mating habits, as demonstrated by uh, Insel, Young, Wang, and their collaborators in their uh, popular experiments with voles. Uh, As these researchers and many others have emphasized, several of the brain regions associated with long-term attachment in voles, as well as humans, and the few other uh, socially monogamous mammal species, are rich in receptors for the hormones oxytocin, vasopressin, and dopamine. And these are released through sex and touch and orgasm and breastfeeding, and seem to play a major role in both the formation and the maintenance of uh, both adult and mother-infant pair bonds. Uh, Specifically, oxytocin and vasopressin contribute to the processing of social cues, which allow for identifying the uh, social object, and uh, dopamine seems to play a reinforcing role by associating that person information with the positive emotions that go along. Um, In voles, as you may have heard, there are two closely related species that employ either a polygamous or a monogamous uh, mating strategy. And the difference appears to depend very heavily on the expression of uh, oxytocin and vasopressin as well as on the distribution of their receptors in the brain. And some really interesting studies involved uh, manipulating these levels directly. So um, if you infuse oxytocin into the brain of females and vasopressin into the brain of males, uh, they will actually form a pair bond without ever having to mate. and the big finding for the purposes of this talk is that this effect can be reversed Uh, so in one study injecting a female prairie vole with either an oxytocin or a dopamine antagonist caused her to lose her monogamous tendencies, so she failed to show any partner preference as a function of copulation Larry Young described the findings this way uh, they will not bond no matter how many times they mate with a male or how hard he tries to bond they mate, it feels really good and they move on if another male comes along (laughs) Uh, likewise, if you take a male prairie vole that is already bonded to a female prairie vole and you inject a dopamine blocker in the nucleus accumbens at a very specific site, uh, they will stop their usual mate-guarding behaviors and they will become interested in other female voles. I spent a long time on that animation. So, <laughs> <clears throat> Now, it has not yet been shown conclusively that human attachment relies on the exact same hormonal machinery as that used by voles, but a number of researchers have argued that it seems very likely that such a a system which is so central to reproduction and survival uh, would be highly conserved. (coughs) Okay, another possible attachment-dissolving intervention uh, comes from Koppgra's delusion. Delusion. Uh, In this delusion, an individual reports uh, believing that a close spouse, a sibling, or a friend has been replaced by an imposter who shares identical visual features. Uh, patients suffering from this condition are able to recognize faces but the automatic emotional arousal to a familiar face doesn't ensue. Uh, One possible explanation for this phenomenon is that the neuroanatomical pathways responsible for appropriate emotional reactions to familiar visual stimuli have been damaged or somehow degraded. And uh, this account fits in pretty well with the oxytocin vasopressin dopamine model of attachment which requires the integration of the social cues with the network of positive emotions. <coughs> uh, so it's possible that a future anti-love intervention could mirror the cop effect, ideally without inducing its delusive aspects by uh, interfering with this integration in a targeted way. And there's a side note to make here about a line of research into memory erasing drugs uh, like those that are currently being tested to treat post-traumatic stress uh, disorder because these seem to work in a way that's similar. They don't actually erase the memory but they take the the cue or the content of the memory and they separate it from its emotional valence. (coughs) And uh, finally, recent work on the anatomical, neurochemical, phenomenological, and behavioral parallels between love and addiction suggests that uh, treatments aimed at the latter may one day be used to address the former as well. So going well beyond the conceptual foundation laid down by uh, Peel and Brodsky in the 1970s, uh, Larry Young and James Burkett recently reviewed about 400 studies across a range of disciplines to make the case that uh, social attachment may be understood as a behavioral addiction, whereby the subject becomes literally addicted to another individual and the cues that predict social reward. Uh, They point out that all known drugs of abuse cause the release of dopamine within the nucleus accumbens, and then they go on to compare the specific dopaminergic effects of maternal bonding and romantic bonding with substances like cocaine. And they conclude that the mechanisms behind the formation and the maintenance of social bonds uh, uh, overlap considerably, both anatomically and functionally, with those involved in drug addiction. And their discussion of the parallel addiction attachment functions of opioids, corticotropin releasing hormone, and oxytocin and vasopressin lead them to draw a similar conclusion. Uh, Very relevant to our discussion, the implications of this uh, connection between love and addiction Uh, were were brought up by uh, Burkett and Young. They said, These observations suggest that treatments used in one domain may be effective in another. For instance, treatments used to reduce drug cravings may be effective in uh, treating a bad breakup. Okay. So that's an overview of some of the science in this area. And uh, the purpose of going through it in in all that detail was just to highlight that this is not a futuristic science fiction type case where you just make up all the details, but a lot of this is... Uh, emerging uh, and and we're on the heels of this research. Uh, And I'd like to now uh, turn to kind of the second part, a little bit of a shorter part, and and try to sketch out an ethical framework for dealing with all this science that we've just talked about. Uh, The ultimate question, or one of the ultimate questions, is could there be a case in which it would be morally permissible or justifiable for someone to take a drug that would artificially turn off feelings of love or lust or attachment that were otherwise naturally occurring. And I started this talk with some candidate cases for what seemed like pretty obviously harmful forms of love or attraction, like the domestic abuse case or pedophilia or perhaps love that might lead to adultery. And for these cases, it seemed like there might be at least a prima facie argument for some kind of intervention, although there would obviously be a lot of details to work through. Uh, But then I sort of complicated the picture by bringing up cases like interracial love and homosexual love and intercaste love, which don't at all seem problematic from the perspective of a liberal mindset, but which, of course, are the very sorts of love-related phenomena that certain groups in society might be very happy to eliminate if they had the right set of tools. So a very uh, general sort of concern, before we can look at any of the details, is that anti-love biotechnology might end up being used to homogenize uh, the sexual and relational landscape. And a big concern here would be that uh, people might try to eliminate various sexual preferences or forms of relationship that are not actually harmful or that might even be healthy or positively worth pursuing just on the grounds that they weren't normative or that they somehow conflicted with a narrow-minded set of supposed values that we should really be focusing our energy on trying to push back against. And this does seem to me to be a, a very serious concern. Um, as we probably all know about, the very disturbing use of conversion therapy in the United States to try to uh, cure gay and lesbian individuals of their sexual and romantic feelings was a practice that carried on until at least the 1970s uh, in the US, I don't know what the story is, in Britain, uh, with the mainstream endorsement of the entire field of mental health. And what this history gives us reason to think about is that there is a much wider debate going on in society about what sorts of values we should hold in the first place with respect to things like love and sex and relationships and how we should conceive of the notion of health and mental health and well-being Uh, and obviously many other things as well. So biotechnology or no biotechnology, there is always going to be this wider conversation between the insights of progressivism and the insights of conservatism, as well as between the forces of secularism and the forces of religion and so on. And it's not something that's in any way unique to the sorts of interventions that I've been talking about today. So the, the wider question will always be, how can we use new technologies for good rather than ill while simultaneously trying to reach some sort of consensus on what should be considered good and what should not be considered ill. Now having just said that, I do think there's something at least a little bit unusual about the present case, because it might be an instance in which the typical divide between the so-called bio-liberals and the bio-conservatives gets a little bit flipped around. Uh, What I mean is that uh, normally in these sorts of debates, you have on the one hand the more uh, futuristic and progressive-minded philosophers, We're making arguments about how we should use these new technologies to refashion ourselves according to our goals. Uh, And on the other hand, you have uh, uh, some more cautious, bioskeptical philosophers making what are sometimes rather thinly veiled religious arguments to the effect that we should simply appreciate things as they are and accept it all as a kind of a gift. Uh, When they use the term gift, they don't usually say from whom, uh, but you sort of can guess what they mean. But curiously, when it comes to human sexuality, you get a very interesting sort of reversal. All of a sudden, the conservative elements are interested in the the possibilities of re-engineering our bodies and our emotions to make them more sexually and and, and relationally normative, as we saw with the yeshiva students uh, and with various attempts to cure homosexuality. And then it's the liberal commentators making the point that maybe we should just leave well enough alone. It's a very interesting kind of reversal. So a different strategy uh, might be to pick, uh, pick a case that everyone can agree is harmful, and to try to spell out some of the relevant moral considerations looking at it that way. So let's just focus in on the example I gave at the very beginning, which was the domestic abuse case. Now, everyone can agree that a feeling of very deep emotional attachment to someone who abuses you would constitute at least a potentially problematic kind of love. But it doesn't immediately follow from this that there would be a role for anti-love biotechnology in this kind of a relationship. First, it's possible that you wind up with a Stockholm Syndrome-like situation, in which the person might not actually want to leave the relationship in part because she may have reformulated the violence in a way that makes it seem justified or that makes it seem even meaningful to her within the uh, uh, emotional framework she's constructed or she might uh, just believe that a certain amount of violence is tolerable uh, if it's offset by other aspects of the relationship that she values to a greater degree in this case we would have to ask who is it that would be administering this anti-love intervention it probably wouldn't be the person herself Uh, since she doesn't want it, at least not at the conscious level of her own reasoning. So it seems there would have to be some other individual or group of individuals effectively forcing the treatment on an unwilling target. And uh, this is obviously a difficult situation. Uh, On the one hand, if love really can make you lose your mind, as some of this research is suggesting, if it makes you literally not normal, as we saw from those earlier studies, then it seems, at least in theory, there could be an argument for overruling a person's autonomy and intervening against her will. Of course, you would have to provide very strong evidence that the person was genuinely incompetent to make a decision on her own behalf, and you'd have to be sure that she was at risk of suffering very serious and unambiguous harm uh, if left to her own devices. But on the other hand, the potential for paternalistic overreach in a case like this seems pretty substantial. Uh, So we still might not have found our cut-and-dried scenario that we can use to effectively anchor our ethical framework. So a better case might be the one from the specific story I started with at the beginning about the woman named Bonnie. Uh, From the way she described her feelings, you could tell that she knew she needed to leave the relationship, and she had a second order desire to leave it, but that her first order romantic bond was standing in the way of her actual ability to do so. So if anti-love biotechnology has any sort of role to play in the future of human relationships, this would seem to be a really promising scenario. Um, First, the love in question is clearly harmful and needs to dissolve one way or another. Second, uh, the person would conceivably want to use the technology so there would be no problematic violations of consent. And third, the technology would help the person follow her higher-order goals instead of her lower order feelings, so there would seem to be no threat to autonomy either. And a similar logic might apply to someone with Uh, pedophilia or uh, someone falling for an individual other than uh, her spouse or to someone who is desperately and unrequitedly in love and just had no chance of those feelings ever being returned Uh, uh, for for each of these sorts of cases the personal voluntary use of a love diminishing intervention would seem to be at least potentially just justified now someone might object uh, here that there is an important distinction to draw between simply trying to diminish love which may indeed be justified in these sorts of cases and using a biochemical intervention specifically to do it. Uh, And the argument would be that uh, a person who is suffering a harmful or a dangerous kind of love should first make a point of overcoming her feelings using what you would call traditional or non-biomedical methods. And these could include uh, some of the suggestions we saw earlier from Lucretius or Ovid. Or it might just involve uh, deleting someone's number from your phone or spending less time stalking them on Facebook. And this does seem like a pretty sensible suggestion. If for no other reason these less invasive methods would likely be safer and have fewer side effects and they would preserve the greatest opportunity for dealing with and learning from the so-called bigger picture or real life issues that were contributing to the problem in the first place. But I think it's equally important not to be dogmatic about rejecting possible interventions just because it's new or unfamiliar or comes in the form of a pill. In some cases it might be possible that the traditional methods simply wouldn't work or that the person doesn't have the strength or the willpower to tackle those bigger picture issues without some sort of chemical ally. So we might add a further item to our list of considerations, and that is that in some cases it might not be psychologically possible to overcome the perilous feelings without the help of anti-love biotechnology. And I think if you could meet all four of these conditions that would certainly be the strongest case for, uh, for the moral permissibility of their use. Now I can see uh, at least a couple of other objections or cautions that could be raised, uh, even if we could make sure that we had met all four of these conditions. But I I want to finish up by returning to an idea that I uh, mentioned at the introduction, which is that uh, sometimes suffering is a good thing uh, because it helps us to learn and grow and discover things about ourselves that we never would have discovered without having gone through all that pain. Uh, But equally, I think it's important in these sorts of conversations to remember that in a lot of these cases, uh, suffering is just suffering, and it doesn't have this instrumental value. Um, And I'd like to end with a quote from a very interesting essay on the moral implications of the film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind by the philosopher Christopher Grau. It's a very interesting essay. Um, uh, This is an essay that focuses on the potential of using memory-erasing drugs to recover from a traumatic relationship. And this is a type of intervention I didn't uh, cover in this talk because there's a growing literature focusing on justice intervention already, and I wanted to say some things that were a little bit new. But I do want to share the concluding paragraph of his paper, uh, keeping in mind the parallels with anti-love biotechnology. Uh, Memory removal, is what he was talking about, involves a sacrifice because of the conflict between the value we place on veracity and the value we place on contentment. Such a sacrifice involves a significant loss. I think it's important for him to point out that there is a loss involved, but in certain circumstances this loss may be outweighed by the gain made in contentment or freedom or psychic help. Uh, Our duty to remember can be trumped by the horribly debilitating effects of severe trauma, and in such cases it would be quite cruel to deny relief to the person who is suffering. Thank you.